Amen. You can be seated. How are we doing this morning? Good to see you all. Welcome. We're trying to structure the calendar at Sun River Church so that um, it is consistent. And so I just want to give you some updates. We're, we're going to be working through updating the website and our communication we're looking to sharpen. And many of you know that um, on the first Sunday of the month, we do communion. Oftentimes it's not the only Sunday, but you, you can lock that away. First Sunday of the month in our corporate gathering, we will remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the atonement of sin through remembering and celebrating the communion table. We're adding to the first Sunday of the month so that you can just remember every first Sunday there will be a members class in the 9 a.m. seminars. Uh, whether it's the first level, which we call belong, we're also creating a second level on um, your spiritual gifts and how you um, edify the body as a part of the body. And then the third one it will be focused on how you share your faith. But you can count on every first Sunday, there will be a belong or members class of some sort in the 9 a.m. And, and that starts in uh, February, so it's coming up here. There will be a, a belong class the first Sunday in February. And then in March, and for the rest of the year, first Sunday will also have communion, a members class, and corporate prayer in the evening, where we will gather to pray together as we become a praying church. You've heard me talk about this. We have a prayer council that has been put together. They're beginning to plan. We have multiple prayer teams, and we're going to be inviting more of you to be a part of those prayer teams. And then... The first Sunday of the month, we will corporately gather in the evening, 6.30 to 8, and pray. And as a matter of fact, the, the prayer service is being put together. It was uh, part of uh, some collaboration this past week, and we're going to be moving forward. Um, it'll be a prayer tour, similar to what we did before COVID. We'll be praying through and for the different ministries and buildings here at the church. So I want to encourage you to mark down first Sunday of the month and remember those things will be going on. Um, and then one more um, little announcement before we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As many of you know, several members at Sun River Church, um, other brother and sisters in Christ have lost loved ones in the past couple of weeks. It's been a challenge uh, many of you know different people who have lost somebody, whether in illness or sickness or sudden death. And so be praying for these individuals. I also want to let you know that my grandfather on Saturday morning passed away, he lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, 97 years old. You've heard me talk about him. He was a missionary, went to Moody Bible Institute. He was deemed in his high school, Inglewood, Colorado, the saint He's a believer since the time he was a young boy. This was my mom's dad. As we go to a prayer focus coming out of Easter for our small groups, our home groups, and on Sunday morning we focus on prayer, my grandfather left a legacy of prayer. Four o'clock every morning he was up praying. Um, in one of my devotionals for the upcoming prayer focus, 
The title of it is, I want to pray like Don Knotts. Because that was my grandfather. You didn't know that my grandfather was Don Knotts. Not the Don Knotts you're thinking of, but the Don Knotts I'm thinking of. Not Barney Fife, but his name was Don Knotts. And he was a prayer warrior. He left a legacy of prayer. And so... um, Our men's Bible study is talking about biblical manhood, and we're leading towards this place where hopefully men understand how to leave a legacy for the next generation in Christ. Grab your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As I will explain in just a minute, we're going to slow down a little bit in this chapter. And move methodically through chapter 14. It's going to take a couple of weeks. But I want you to know that every Sunday morning, many of you know, I get here fairly early. Um, It's like Sunday morning is go time. I wake up and I'm just like ready to go. And I get here to pray. And I want you to know that because for the past three years, I have been praying a very purposeful and specific prayer for you, for our congregation, for those who belong, for those who believe, for those who attend and call Sun River Church their local home, the body of Christ. The prayer is that you will become like the Bereans, that you will hear God's word, that you will affirm what you hear on a Sunday morning in corporate worship by searching the scriptures for yourself, that you will become, what I've said in the past, creatures of God's word, that his word has authority in your life. I pray this every Sunday. I want to invite you to begin to pray this for our church. You see, culture creeps into church, and I've been at Sun River for 23 plus years, and we've gone through different movements, different phases, just like every church, whether it's the seeker movement or the social movement or whatever culture's spinning off. And at the end of the day, I want you to know there will be a day where I'm not here. I know that's hard to believe, but I'm doing a life sentence at Sun River Church, and I'm grateful. You heard me say I was born in the pew, raised in the pew, probably going to die in the pew. Right here, I hope and pray, but, but God is sovereign. And I want this church to not succumb to phases of culture that creep in. That when somebody else stands up and opens God's word, if it is contrary to scripture, you don't say amen. But like last week, When Shailen opened the word of God, you affirmed God's truth that this church stands on the foundation of scripture and nothing can shake it. That is my prayer. Sound doctrine from scripture is how the church grows in its holiness Sound theology based on scripture is how the church teaches the truth of the gospel to the next generation. Grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
I've used this illustration in the past. I think it is fitting for this morning as we focus on the first five verses in this book that Paul writes to this church he dearly loves, who has become disorganized. There's no unity. It's allowed the culture to creep in and affect the congregation. The famous 19th century poet John Godfrey Sachs wrote a poem called The Blind Man and the Elephant. Maybe you've heard of it. The first words go like this. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see an elephant, though all the men were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. It is a humorous poem taken or retelling an ancient Hindu folk tale. A story of six blind men who have heard of this beast called an elephant, but they've never seen one or experienced one. So they approach the massive beast and they draw their conclusions about the animal based on their limited experience. The first one falls against the side of the animal and concludes that the elephant is like a wall. The second feeling a smooth, sharp tusk, determines that the elephant is like a spear. The third, grasping the trunk, pictures the animal to be like a snake. The fourth, moving right along, feeling around massive, tough-skinned leg, decides that the elephant resembles a tree. The fifth, examines the elephant's floppy ears and compares the animal to a waving fan. And then the sixth, grabbing the swinging tail, concludes an elephant is like a rope. The poem concludes their failed experience with these words. And so these men of Indostan disputed Loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each is partly right, all were in the wrong. See, as we prepare to wade into Paul's argument concerning the proper function of gifts within corporate worship, And especially as we wade into the question of the gift of tongues, we need to understand the gifts in light of the whole context, which is what I'm setting out to do. I've talked about this two weeks ago in regards to the error of proof texting, picking one verse out of scripture and then basing all your belief on one portion of scripture. Chapter 14 is riddled with verses that have been pulled out of context all throughout church history. We want to move through this methodically and in context. This is how true interpretation of scripture 
is supposed to function. And it becomes vitally imperative in controversial issues that create division within the church. Paul goes to a great length to walk the Corinthians through this problem of worship confusion. So we need to address this issue honestly, objectively, with balance in seeking truth. We want to get to the critical questions that Paul is addressing in the first church in Corinth. He does. He answers questions. He answers what the purpose of speaking in tongues is for. And all gifts, for that matter. He he addresses questions like, can you teach it? Should everybody use the gift of tongues or all the gifts? We, We covered a little bit of that in chapter 12. Are there rules and regulations? And a question that's popped up in the last couple weeks here at Sun River Church. Is there a difference between the gift of tongues and personal prayer language? In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul provides several helpful principles and guidelines on the value and the role of speaking in tongues in the first century. And so our goal over the next few weeks, three weeks specifically, if not more, we will walk through all 40 of the verses in chapter 14 while staying above the trees to get the whole context of the forest. This way, we can avoid the common error Again, like I said, of taking individual verses out of context and wrongly concluding that our, quote, elephant is a snake, a spear, a rope. This is called proof texting. It's dangerous in biblical hermeneutics and interpretation. But before we jump in, I want to make a few key remarks to set the stage. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying And moving through 1 Corinthians 14, we are not studying tongues. There are books written on this. This is not what we're doing. It's a part of the topic, but this is not the focus of the topic. We need to let Paul's words guide us on the issue and give us proper perspective. Second, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 Speak to spiritual gifts as a whole. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts? It is not restricted to the single subject of speaking in tongues. Yes, Paul emphasized the gift of tongues in chapter 14, not because it has special importance among all the spiritual gifts, but in context, as you will see, because the Corinthians are abusing the gift. Paul spends a great deal of time on the subject, subject, not to expose it or not to exalt it, but to put it in the proper place. And then before we jump in, I need to give a disclaimer. As 
Two weeks ago, I mentioned that I believe my personal interpretation is that the gift, the sign gifts of tongues and prophecy have ceased. And I want you to know that is my interpretation. And there are guys that are way smarter than I am that I deeply respect and have helped me to grow in my faith and love and understanding of scripture who do not believe that the gift of tongues have ceased. Guys like John Piper, I revere this man. He does not believe that tongues have ceased. D.A. Carson and several others fall on this side. And there are men on the side that I fall on who believe they've ceased. These are godly men. These groups of men love each other, teach together, work together. And what they're unified in, whether they believe tongues have ceased or not, they all agree. And I'm going to paraphrase. Those who say that it has not ceased, they say, however, the rules and the order in 1 Corinthians 14 and from Acts, they're put there and they must be followed. And those that believe that it hasn't ceased, they'll say, and I... I believe tongues haven't ceased, but I've not seen a church follow the rules. Which is another way of saying, I don't know if they've ceased or not, but I just don't see it followed. And then those over here say they've ceased because I don't see churches following the rules. So wherever you land, I just want you to know I love you. (laughs) And I could be wrong. We're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on the purpose of tongues. That's explicit. We're going to focus on the understanding behind it that is imperative and the order. Those are there. And if the spirit of God moves in somebody's life or in a congregation specifically, enables them the gift to speak a language, glory be to God. Now, I also want to say, To understand the context, we're going to break this down. This is talking about the gift of tongues in corporate worship. This is not talking about your personal, private prayer language. That'll be a sermon on another day. But that's that these two things are different. And Paul makes that really clear. I brushed over it in chapter 12 where he's using hyperbole about an angelic language, but that's not the context. It's not an exhortation. And we'll see this play out in chapter 14. We are united in Christ. This is a secondary issue. Don't let it divide. We are united in Christ, whether we live in Philadelphia and our name is Shailin and we are rooting for the Eagles today, or you live here and you're rooting for the 49ers, we are united in Christ. That football game should not divide us. And since some of us in church are looking at our phones, ready to watch the game, church is going to go long today. All right. Please stand for the public reading of scripture. (laughs) That's right. Amen. Amen. This is God's authoritative word. 
1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. May God be blessed by the public reading and hearing of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, in heaven, may your name be kept holy. You are sovereign. You are not like us, Lord. You are supreme. You are highest. You are utmost. You are ultimate. We worship you. And we ask you for mercy. Give us, by your mercy and grace, clear minds to understand the truth of your word. Give us, Lord, the will to receive it, the integrity to declare it with our lives, the zeal to obey and defend it. Make us, Lord, a church of your word by your grace. And while, Lord, we are pursuing you and chasing after the love that you have bestowed on us, work in us faithfulness in whatever place you have us, wherever you lead us, whether difficulty or loss surround us, sorrow and depression creeps in through or around us, grant us unity, comfort and console us in our fellowship with one another. Lord, let us run the race set before us so that we can hear with joyful hearts at the end of our days, whichever you allow, we will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant with you, I am pleased. We pray these things in your son's name, amen. You can be seated. First Corinthians, Paul is gonna remind us of three fundamental principles in corporate worship. The context is corporate worship. Don't let the context leave your insight in understanding what's being addressed. There, there are three sections. The, the first section, which we're going to look at today, it focused, the key word is edification. And edification will lead into next week an understanding and then last the order in how corporate worship is supposed to function. But let me say this as clear as I can. The purpose of spiritual gifts, all of them, 
is for edification in the body. And you're going to see Paul's words are going to make it clear that when you use a spiritual gift for yourself, not for the edification of the body, it is an abuse in corporate worship of the gift from God. This gets twisted very easily. We have faith. This faith is built on the truth. And this truth then defines our experience. The church in Corinth, and still alive and well today, the experience comes first. We have an experience. We're told and confirmed that experience based on truth. And then our faith follows. This is very dangerous. Faith is not free willy, wishful thinking. It's built on facts that then dictate how we experience the truth based on our faith. In chapter 12, the love chapter, we focused on love being an emotion before it's an emotion. This is what I just spelled out. What is the greatest expression of love, the motion of love you have ever received? What is the greatest motion of love you have ever given? See, biblical love does not build up yourself. Biblical love does not encourage yourself. You may get those, but biblical love builds up others. It encourages others. It is consolation to others. And so as we transition from chapter 13 to 14, the main point in 13 and chapter 14 are connected the main point is that the greatest gift of all is love. Pursue love in chapter 14 in order to speak truth to others. So if you have your Bibles, let's move through these first five verses. Almost one word at a time. Pursue love. The Greek verb Dioko, pursue. This indicates an all-out, go-for-broke chase. What does this look like? What does it feel like? A police might pursue, or how a police would pursue the most wanted criminal, or how a hunter might track down its prey. When I was in college, half my freshman dorm decided they were going to drop out of college and go into the Glendale Police Department because you got a starting salary of like $65,000, all the benefits, everything. Like, yeah, and all these guys, yeah, we're going to be police. And I, man, I wanted to do that so bad. Luckily, by God's grace, I just, I loved basketball. Basketball was my idol. So that kept me from chasing a different idol. And in the junior high group that I was serving in, um, what spurred this on was one of our junior high volunteers. He was a Glendale PD. He was the cop of the year two years in a row, played college soccer. This dude was a stud. He was about 10 years older than I was. And I remember, man, I'm in good shape. He goes, Andy, you want to go on a ride along? You bet. So I, you know, we're Glendale PD. I signed this form and I get, you know, get in the car and he says, okay, here's the rules. I had this j jacket that I wore that said police on the back. Here are the rules. Um, if you can't get out of the car, I'll tell you to stay in the car. I was like, that's great. 
He goes, but you pretty much signed your life away. So if I don't say anything, you just come, you just shadow me wherever I go. It's like, great. So we literally pull out of the police station and he gets a, a burglar alert, flips it on. And he was, he was being a, a bit sensational because he just floors it. And I just remember going, oh, and we're, and it was amazing. We pull up in this very rich neighborhood right outside of, I don't remember exactly, right outside of Glendale. And we see the, the bad guy, so to speak, come running out of a giant house and start running down the street. He slams it into park. He goes, let's go. And I'm like, what, what, what? And so we take off. He's running after the, the bad guy. And I'm running after the guy running after the bad guy. He's got all his gear on and he's just, and I'm trucking and he's getting farther. And I'm like, how in the world are you outrunning me when you're carrying all that stuff? And he goes around the corner and I finally catch up. He's already cuffed him, put, you know, arrested him and everything else. This is the concept of this Greek word pursue. You got it? Pursue love, earnestly desire. Zelao, be zealous for, earnestly strive after. Man, Paul's using these two words, dioko and zelao, to paint a picture. Desire, spiritual gifts, pneumatikos, spiritual gifts. This word pneumatikos means divine spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is one who is filled with and governed by and ruled by the spirit of God. Pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially at the top of the food chain that you may prophesy. Propheteo. Prophesy. This had to wreck the ears of the listeners in the first century. Because they're listening, yeah, pursue love. Yeah, we got that. Earnestly desire. Yes, we desire spiritual gifts and not tongues. Because this is what they were all desiring. This is what set the, 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 the book up for Paul to write specifically 12, 13, and 14. There's just disunity. We tend to think of prophecy when we see this word as predicting the future. This is, this is what happens, especially in the Old Testament. We talk about this at Christmas. Isaiah is predicting, he's promising, so to speak, what's going to happen. And, and, it, and it came to truth in the life of Jesus. But the New Testament doesn't just mean Predicting True prophecy in scripture, though, is always a direct word from God. Before the scriptures were complete, God's inspired authoritative message was communicated by the early church through the lips of recognized prophets. But I've got to be very specific as to what they were prophesying about. It was not ever, hey, I just want to speak something over you to, no, no, no. It was always in regards to the gift of tongues and prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. 
For them, was it new revelation from the Spirit? Yes, because the scriptures weren't complete yet. But it was always affirmed by the eyewitness accounts of the gospel. See, the gift of prophecy was needed in the first century because the New Testament, like I said, was not complete. So prophets, together with the apostles, formed, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 3, the foundational truths for the church in the first generation of Christians. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul talks about this foundation, the apostolic age, as it said, the apostles and the prophets, and the foundation is laid. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. The focus is verse 20. But fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the temp- the holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the spirit of God. You don't lay a foundation of a house twice unless the foundation is broken. And the foundation that Paul is talking here was not broken. It was laid down. You see, today, the authoritative prophetic teaching of the apostles and the prophets, as one commentator puts it, are, to preserve, are preserved in the Bible, making the need for living today apostles and prophets unnecessary. So when Paul elevates the teaching of prophets in 1 Corinthians 14, this is equal to today the church being Faithful in the proclamation of the word of God. As one of my professors puts it, Stephen J. Lawson, if you hear new revelation, it's not true revelation. We believe that the authority of scripture in the canon is closed. You cannot add to it. And when people say, God spoke and I heard his voice and they add to scripture. They're disobeying the very scriptures because it says, do not add and do not take away. But still today, thank you for that. Shylin's counting, by the way. I'm kidding. But still today we find, and I've had multiple conversations with fellow pastors at different churches who believe something different. And I've talked a lot about this. We walk through scripture, but it's a different interpretation and it is void of context. Still today, there are those who say or claim the same kind of apostle and prophet we see in the New Testament. This claim is to have the same authority that Peter, Paul, and John had authority to provide inspired, authoritative, direct messages from God himself. My question is, can this happen? Is this possible? Are there genuine apostles and prophets today? And I must humbly say, as I submit 
to the understanding of the word of God and the testimony of the early church, to me, the answer is clearly, no, not the same. Those apostles in the first century saw the resurrection. We don't have physical sight of it. And we're called by Jesus himself. We're called, but it's not the same. The foundational offices of apostle and prophet were only for the first century church period because of the purpose in which was needed. It's not needed today. Paul makes this really clear. And we'll see this again, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15. So in this first verse, this is what Paul says. Chase love. Be zealous for higher gifts. But there's greater importance in speaking or to speak God's word. Verse 2 to 3, he then goes on to say, speaking God's word edifies the church in three ways. He says in the beginning, pursue love, earnestly desire, especially that you prophesy. Four, he's making a new statement. Four, one who speaks in, please circle in your Bibles, a tongue. Glosa. We'll get back to that in a second. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. I agree with the vine's exhaustive concordance here when it says there is no evidence of the continuance of this gift after the apostolic times, nor the need in latter times of the apostles themselves. There's no more writing after this. There's no more exhortation in all the books that are written on what to do and how to do. The, the, this book solved the issue. Goes on to say, this provides confirmation of the fulfillment in this way, the way of 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that the gift would cease in the churches. The completion of the Holy Scriptures has provided the church with all of the necessary that is necessary for the individual in guidance, instruction, and edification, end quote. Now, I know that some would suggest that speaking in tongues here is a gift of self-edification and that Paul would say, no, he's, he's saying tongues is okay. It's for self-edification. Well, prophecy is for corporate edification, but we have to use the whole context of scripture and those who say it has ceased and those who say it has not ceased all almost unanimously agree with Acts 2 that the gift of tongues involves speaking an actual foreign language. Again, the Greek word glossa means a structured language, not random or free vocalization. When Paul says no one understands those speaking in tongues, it's because they utter mysteries, he isn't suggesting that the gift is different from that which we see in the book of Acts. Hearing, those hearing the tongues in Acts, chapter 2, understood 
what was being said because they knew the language the apostles were speaking. This is critically important. If no one knows the language, then the speaker utters mysteries. You can neither confirm nor deny. And the gift of tongues always had to have a confirmation. Some would note that 1 Corinthians 13.1, which I talked a little bit about, tongues of angels, does not support the idea of the gift of tongues. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13.1-3, Paul engages in hyperbole. He's not exhorting some extra gift. See, I believe what happens in charismatic circles regarding tongues, is similar to what we see in, today, similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the first century. The gift is redefined to include free vocalization, and when people claim to have the gift described in Scripture, this is what they go to. In doing so, they redefine the gift to accommodate their experience. I am not saying that the experience is demonic. I'm not saying, that's not, I don't have scripture to support that, so I'm not saying that. It's just redefined. And Paul here is correcting the error of some in the church who are using the gift of tongues for themselves, seeking to build up themselves. They weren't intending to do that. They weren't sitting there going, yeah, they, they weren't explicitly, yeah, look at them, how amazing I am. But that's what they were driving for. That's the, the, the note they were getting. He paints this picture. And then in chapter, or verse three, he says, on the other hand, the opposite. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Speaking God's word edifies the church in three ways upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Upbuilding is edification. Oikotome. It literally means building of a house or any building process, this edification. Akodeme is used in Ephesians 2.21 to refer to the church as the building for God's indwelling. The idea here in this first word for edification is the process of building up spiritually and strengthening spiritually. Exhortation refers to coming along one's side to aid them by providing relief and comfort and encouragement. Parakalesis is the Greek word. And then consolation pictures one coming to another side to inspire. I want you to see 
what we are called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ in edifying and building each other up spiritually, exhorting each other, providing relief and comfort, encouragement, and consoling each other. There's two lines to consoling that are developed. The first one is to inspire someone, is inspiring someone's will about what ought to be done. The second line is inspiring up hope for the good outcome. You see, in Greek, secular Greek culture, this word consolation was connected to death and tragic events. And Paul's using it here in the same form. These words put together convey the comforting and encouraging word of exhortation, inspiring the believer to continue in the faith. It means encouragement in the sense of comfort and consoling, which is critical, as we all know, in some way, shape, or form, for spiritual growth in the midst of obstacles and struggle and doubt and Christian failures that we all experience. And we need to. This is koinonia. This is fellowship. This is what we mean when we say you belong here. Speaking God's word, verses four through five, builds up the church. Only Paul makes this clear, if it's understandable. I asked you to circle the words, it's, it's here four times, a tongue. I want you to notice the difference between the plural and the singular use of the word tongue. I believe that when Paul uses the singular of glossa, he's referring to a non-language, gibberish. When he uses the plural, he's referring to language because you can't have plural gibberish. We, th- there aren't kinds of, all kinds of double talk. The one who speaks in a tongue, singular, builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak, here he goes, changes to the plural, in tongues, because there's multiple languages, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks, plural, in tongues. Notice when he talks about the self-edifying one, it's linked to singular, it's unintelligible, But every time he uses the plural form of glossa, he gives an exhortation. When he says, I want you to speak a language that you haven't learned, that's the true gift of tongues. I want you all to be able to do this, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues tongues unless someone interprets and the interpretation as we're going to see in the next few weeks is always affirmed by those who actually know the language every single time it's not gibberish and then somebody makes an exhortation or interprets what nobody else can confirm 
in, let me say this, because I know I love you to death, but there's minds going all over the place in corporate worship. That's the context. Let's stay there. Why? Why, whether it's prophesying so people can know and be edified or speaking a language you don't know so people can hear the gospel and the interpretation is affirmed. Why? So that the church may be built up. As one scholar paraphrases verse 4, the one who insists on speaking in a tongue in the church without interpretation is selfishly trying to edify himself, whether they mean to or not. I want you to remember, as we prepare to move into next week, all the spiritual gifts that are given by God, and all the spiritual gifts are given by God, including tongues, are for the common good Chapter 12, verse 7 and 10. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4.14, has clearly stated speaking in tongues for the purpose of anything else than edifying is an abuse. Edifying, not yourself, but the body. Again, Paul would love everybody to experience this miraculous ability. But if you proof text it, and people do, they say, see, Paul wants everybody to speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. You don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is a classic example of proof texting. Don't miss next week because I'm going to proof text next week at the beginning and there's a good chance I'm going to get killed by what I say. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be great. I already told Heidi and she said, you're not. Oh, I'm going to proof text next week. To make a point, I, I may chicken out. But you'll have to come to see. I don't know. You see, at the heart, the Corinthians, they had a strong desire to love God. Paul knows it. They believed and they trusted the gospel. Their lives were transformed. And, but, but they allowed the experience of that to take control. And this desire was noble, but it was out of place. It's not wrong to desire the spiritual gifts. Paul makes that clear in and by themselves. It's right to desire spiritual gifts. The concern should be using the gifts to minister to others. They didn't realize that they were elevating the sign gifts. And when you elevate the sign gifts the way they do, you de-elevate, you devalue the word of God. Let us not be a church that does this. And I'm just going to tell you, in the 25 years I've been here, I haven't had any, I've never seen anybody stand up, start speaking in tongues, everybody going crazy in, the, in church. So, so listen to what I'm getting ready to say. It's okay to clap your hands when we're worshiping. It's okay to express your love for God. It's not okay to be a distraction, but it's okay to focus your heart and your mind to, to clap and to lift your hands, to praise God, to give an amen. I'm not worried about charismatic chaos here at Sun River Church. Somebody asked me when Sydney went off to Vanguard that is in Assemblies of God University, Andy, aren't you concerned about all the spirit-filled abuse? And I said, no, I'm not. And they're like, why? I love this place. 
I love you. God has called me here. So don't misunderstand my response to this conversation. I raised my kids, I said, in a dead Baptist church. They need a little bit of the spirit. I'm kidding, but you know what I mean. You see, here's what the enemy wants to do, and this is why I say this isn't a demonic thing, this isn't, but we need to be accountable. I just want to say this because we're going to talk about this more, and I'm going to be talking about these things on my live Devo, where we've had some great conversations on this topic. The enemy always sets out first not to deceive you, not to deceive me, to diminish the truth of Scripture. Somebody said to me, Andy, that's your interpretation. I said, yeah, that's mine. What's your interpretation? And they told me their experience. I said, no, no, what's your interpretation of Scripture? I'm okay with you. Let's talk about that. You see, the enemy always, it starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The enemy diminishes the truth. Once the truth is diminished, he distracts you from the truth. And once you're distracted, then you are deceived. We'll talk about that on the live Devo. But what I want to do in closing is say a couple of things and then exhort you. How does this apply to us? First, a couple of very important reminders. Any authentic gift of the Spirit must, as I've said, conform to the Bible's regulations without dispute. Every gift of the Spirit, whether the gift of helps, which nobody's arguing about that one, or the gifts of healing, therefore building up the church, edification of the church is the result of unity and love, not disunity and conflict. Ultimately, this is a second-tier issue. So that's where I want to go second. We don't all have to agree on the issue of spiritual gifts. Christians can still enjoy unity and fellowship over the essentials of the faith without agreeing on the details of secondary disputed issues. All followers of Christ who are true followers of Christ embrace the core doctrines, the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Jesus, the atoning death and miraculous resurrection, the salvation by grace through faith alone, the authoritative scripture. Those are primary. We're unified there. Paul challenges you and I 2,000 years ago with eight words so that the church may be built up. You have been given spiritual gifts not for yourself. How do you contribute to this body? Here here comes the pastor. If you just come on Sunday morning and take, that's not how the church is built up. We want you to move according to scripture, my paraphrase, from the rose into circles, and ultimately face-to-face discipling relationships. And it is in that context, here in this room, into our groups and our circles, and into face-to-face discipling relationships, that you cultivate spiritual growth, that you're held accountable to the gifts 
not you manufacture, but the God has instilled in you for the building up, the comforting, the encouraging, and the exalting of the body of Christ together. You belong here. This is your calling. Do not fall into Western church spectator sport Christianity. It's false. We stand and join me as we pray. Father, we are your people. We are your people who are imperfect, but you are perfect. You came and you redeemed and you give life. You regenerate. You take out hearts that are stone and you put in new beating hearts. Hearts that beat for your word, your truth, your presence, your spirit. Allow us, Lord, to feed your spirit that you put in us with your word. Make us be obedient, lovers of you and lovers of each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.